praise the Lord. We can praise the Lord and get the echo to disappear. Let's just turn to the Lord in prayer because God's word is so important. We don't want to just have a message. We want God's word to create in us the very life that he intends for us. So let's pray. Father in heaven, we are just so thankful first and foremost for sending your son Jesus to die for us. That we've been reconciled through his blood to you. We've become a new creation. And Lord, we just ask that as your word goes forth this morning, that it would change lives. That there would be transformed lives. That your kingdom would grow. That we would experience the power of your Holy Spirit making us like Jesus. In whose mighty name we pray. Amen. I'm move closer. Render to Caesar. Do you already think that this is a message about taxes and paying your taxes? Render to Caesar. This passage two weeks ago was on my mind um, very powerfully. And then we discovered our Tuesday night home group Bible study. Here's our little plug. Six o'clock Tuesdays in the fellowship hall. That it was the very next scripture that we were going to study, which anybody who knows how we run our Tuesday Bible studies, we, we don't look at the scripture before we come in. We discover what the scripture is when we are there, and through dialogue and discussion, the Lord really speaks, and it's powerful, and it's transformative. So, Mark chapter 12, 13 through 17. Then they sent to him, Jesus, some of the Pharisees and Herodians to catch him in his words. When they had come, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and care about no one, for you do not regard the person of men, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why do you test me? Bring me a denarius that I may see it. So they brought it. And he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus answered and said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God, the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. You can't just read a passage of scripture out of context and really get the full picture of what's going on. And one of the neat things that we see in the book of Mark is that they have these narrative sections where this whole story plays out before our very eyes. And this particular narrative section began with the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ into Jerusalem. And to the people, they were crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. And it looked like what was going to happen is that the Messiah or the son of David is going to sit on the throne of David and kick out the Romans. Hurrah! And all the people were celebrating And then Jesus, 
the day that he's going to go to the temple, on his way to the temple, he looks and he sees a fig tree. Hmm, let's go look at this fig tree. And he goes over to the fig tree, but there's no figs on the fig tree. And so he curses it. And it says that, it well, the disciples will find it the next day, but it says that it withered from the root up. And the image there, imagery there is we know that the fig tree represents Israel, but the principle is for our lives. Jesus, or God, was looking for fruit from the fig tree. When he found none, he cursed it, and it was removed. Isn't that interesting? But there's something even more going on. But after he cursed the fig tree, he went to the temple, and he made his, himself known in a way that could not be missed. He went into the temple, and there in the court of the Gentiles, which should have been the place where those who were foreigners to Israel could come and worship the Lord, the Israelites didn't really want them there. And what they really wanted, they had gotten so far astray from God's heart. What is God's heart for the kingdom? What is his heart for religion? They had gotten so far astray that they had money changers there and they were fleecing the people. It was oppressive. It was tyrannical. It was robbery. And a lot of these God-fearing people, they would go to the temple. They would travel from all over to come to the temple and worship God. And they would be taken advantage of. And they were stuck in this position of knowing, I want to pay homage to God because he is worthy. And yet the whole process is stinking because it is out of order. So Jesus comes to the temple and he starts throwing out the money changers and overturning their tables. And the powers that be did not like it very much. Who does this man think he is? And, and so this begins a whole series of conflicts. It's like watching a good boxing match you know, between Jesus and the religious rulers. But this context is so important because the next day after Jesus went and stirred up the hornet's nest, let's say, the disciples are going out again and they saw the fig tree that it was withered and they asked Jesus, what's going on? And he gives the interpretation of the withered fig tree in a manner that is so profound and so important to understand because it paints this passage in the broader context. And he says, um, whoever says to a mountain, be removed and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, it shall be done. And then whatever you ask in prayer, believing you shall receive. And that's actually two separate clauses, because in scripture, mountains re represent power structures, government, systems of authority, and the reality is that because of sin, the world has become corrupt. But God's heart, even we see it in the covenant at Sinai, was I want justice and mercy and grace and peace and blessing for the people. But human beings, because of the influence of sin, often oppress one another use one another, abuse one another, take advantage, and the people are groaning under the government of sin. 
And so Jesus, what he's saying there is if you as a believer, and this is the secret that God has hidden this power and authority in believers to speak to the mountain, be removed and cast into the sea. And what it is, is it's a radical devotion that we will not compromise his kingdom and his truth and that there is hope in every time, in every generation, in every location because of Jesus Christ to overcome what is evil in the world. Isn't that awesome? It's exciting. It's good news. And so this is the context of this whole passage that Christ is saying, this kingdom that is out of order, I'm speaking to this mountain and it will be removed and cast into the sea. And now I'm going to give you the whole broad overview and then get back into this passage. And so we see a series of bouts with that system and see Jesus gave that parable of the fig tree to the disciples because there's coming a time where it's going to look like Jesus failed miserably because it led to his death on the cross. Three days later, he rose again and he released a power in the earth though it be like a little mustard seed, has the power to transform everything. But it only operates as the kingdom of God touches the hearts of men and conforms us into his image, that his love is shed abroad into our hearts, and we begin to be like Jesus and love one another as I have loved you. Isn't that exciting? So is it really about taxes? No, it isn't. What Jesus really meant by render unto Caesar, it's not about taxes, is an article by David T. Ball. The attempted ensnarement of Jesus here and in subsequent episodes was typical of a specific pattern of interrogation called forensic interrogation used by Jewish teachers or rabbis by the first century AD, a hostile questioner poses a question to a rabbi. The rabbi answers with a counter question, which the questioner answers. The rabbi makes use of the questioner's answer to refute his initial challenge. When, when ruling on points of the law, rabbis thought it necessary to base their ruling on scriptural material. Jesus' questioners in this episode were specifically testing his authority by questioning him on the law. Is it lawful to pay taxes? Isn't that interesting? You have to understand that this pattern of forensic interrogation was common and normal, and people understood that when people ask a rabbi a question and he responds with another question he is actually in the process of answering their question and it has to refer back to scripture but he said he knew that they were hypocrites they were hypocrites they didn't really care about whether or not they should pay taxes what they were looking for was a way to destroy Jesus and they did not come up with this in the spur of the moment. They thought about it and pondered, what is the best tactic to destroy him? He 
is popular with the people and we can't get at him unless we can undercut his popularity with the people. That's what it was all about. And so they thought to themselves, the people hate being under Roman rule. They hate it. There were all kinds of rebel movements that rose up and got snuffed out and, you know, false messiahs arose before Jesus actually came and they tried to kick out the Romans and he knew that there was, they, they knew that there was a sentiment in the people that if Jesus proclaimed boldly it is lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, boom, we've undercut a bunch of his support and B, if he declares that it is unlawful to pay taxes to Caesar, we got him. The Romans will kill him. Isn't that interesting? And so he responds with a question. Bring me a denarius. Whose image and inscription is on it? And that is the, that is the central question that is referring back to Scripture because these rabbis and teachers of the law, they understood scriptural references, even in a short little illusion like that. Isn't that interesting? Who, and that's why translations are so important to try, to try to get back to what is really happening here. Whose inscription or image is on it? Inscription, writing, image. Right? And they said, Caesar's. And he responded, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and the things to God that are God's. And the question is, whose image? So the coin was what was at issue. This coin bears the image of Caesar and the inscription of Caesar, which actually is divine Augustus, is most likely the one that it had, which written on it, proclaiming himself to be God. And then you look at ourselves. And I love how Jesus ties everything together. Whose image is on you? And whose inscription is on you? They would think back immediately to Genesis. Let us create man in our own image. And they would think about all these passages where you take the law and put a frontlets on your head, <laughs> you know, God's law, and it says even in Romans, is written on the hearts of all. His inscription is on us, and we are created in his image. Render to God the things that are God's. That is one, everything in your life, and B, it's honestly the law. The law. Interesting thought, isn't that? It's all about the kingdom. If there is a king, the king has a government. And in that government, there is law. And where that law is obeyed, a kingdom is manifested. God's law was known in the Garden of Eden from the beginning. All of, well, all of man and his world was governed by the laws of God, but then sin destroyed it all. And that effect of sin started to degenerate humanity. And by the time of Mount Sinai, God gave his law written on tablets of stone 
because, and my theory is because man would have forgotten the law. Their sin and their willingness to do evil would have so, would have so decimated all knowledge of truth that God codified law so that we could understand it. But that law is nothing, it's not some arbitrary law written by some evil ruler tyrant to try to rob us of life and fun and freedom. His law is really an expression of his character and of his nature. The Bible says that God's invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood through the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, or even the Gentiles who not having the law do by nature the things of the law, showing that it's written upon the hearts of all men. And when God's law rules in its entirety over our lives, blessing to the nations. Righteousness exalts a nation. Sin is a reproach to any people. These laws, you shall not murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not bear false witness. These are played out in all of Scripture, showing us what does it look like under the rule of King Jesus, written upon our hearts. Interesting, isn't it? And a lot of times people are thinking, you know, you hear a lot of arguments, and you know, there are, there are, there's a, there's, we're able to have our disagreements in the body of Christ, Right? And, it, you know, sometimes people think, oh, this doctrine or that doctrine, I've got this doctrine and they've got that doctrine, it's different. There is freedom in Christianity to still be a Christian and follow Jesus and disagree about things, right? And because we are growing into the full knowledge of who Jesus is. And one of the worst things that we could ever do is get puffed up with pride because we think we've got better doctrine than other people and then end up behaving in ways that are contrary to the kingdom. Right? But one of the things that you often hear is that there's always this tension between the God of the Old Testament is a evil, mean, nasty, strike you with lightning, cruel old man. And gentle, loving Jesus wants to get us mercy. But we know that there is only one God and he's fully revealed in Jesus Christ and there's absolutely no difference in the moral... I'm going to challenge people. There's no difference in the morality of the Old and New Testament. But then people will say, well, didn't Jesus say things like, you know, you, you, if you look at a woman with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. And my challenge is this, is that what had happened in Israel is God had given such a beautiful, perfect law, but men couldn't keep the law because there was not yet power through the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit to transform lives. And what they did is they would twist and abuse the law and they destroyed their true understanding of the law. And you can take you right through the gospels and show you this. And all Jesus did when he said that is he took the commandment thou shall not commit adultery and he wed it appropriately to the last commandment which is thou shall not covet or lust or desire is the word isn't that interesting so what he was doing was he was restoring a true knowledge of God's law and when people live according to God's law it brings peace and blessing and freedom and beauty and truth and goodness you know, we, they also say, you know, Jesus said, 
you taught things like turn the cheek. See if somebody strikes you. You know, love those who hate you. Do good to those who do you evil and show yourself to be children of God. You go back to the Old Testament. If you see your enemy and he has his ox and he's fallen over, you can't say, ha, you foolish enemy of mine. <laughs> Serves you right. I'm not going to help you. No, go and help him up with it. The whole question is how do we see his rule and his reign extend over all the earth? The law written on tablets of stone given at Mount Sinai did not come with the power to live it out. But the gospel of Jesus Christ does. And that is what's exciting. Whose image? We are created in the image of God. But through our faith in Jesus Christ, we're recreated. We become a new creation. We pass from death to life. Isn't that wonderful? That it, it, I mean, the Bible says it. You know, those born of women, none is greater than John the Baptist. Man, he got a good testimony, didn't he? To have Jesus say about your life, of those born of women, none is greater. But he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. What do you mean? It means that when you are born again, or when you are regenerated, if we like, depending if it's the same thing, whether you like one form of language or another form of language, it means the same thing. Through faith in Jesus Christ, you are a new creation. You are restored. Isn't that incredible? It's great news indeed. And then it says the law given at Mount Sinai brought death. Why? It said this is what love is. But the law written on tablets of stone could not bring forth his government and rule. But this law, so it says, he writes it on our hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit. See, when we say faith in Jesus, we're not talking about, I believe these things are true. I believe Jesus is the Son of God. I believe that he is the Messiah. I believe that he, you know, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. On the third day, he rose again. You, yes, that believing those truths are important. The devils believe those truths. Belief without a response, faith without works is dead. This truth demands a response. And that response is, I surrender to you, King Jesus. It's in that moment of total surrender to Jesus Christ as your Lord, as your King, as your God, that you come under his kingdom. You become part of his kingdom. You can believe all the truth that is there in the world, but until you surrender your heart 100% to Jesus, submitting to him as your Lord and King and God, you're outside his rule and reign. But the moment you bend the knee to King Jesus, say, Lord, I surrender all to you. His passion is to seal you. This is the passion of our Father in heaven. Jesus, John the Baptist proclaimed, you know, he who comes after me, 
whose sandal strap I'm not even worthy to unloose. He is the one who will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. He came to kindle fire in the earth. And oh, how passionate Jesus said, how constrained I am to see this come to pass. Why? Because the world is suffering and in pain and in bondage. It's, it says all of creation is groaning. I hear it all the time, even at our Tuesday group. Ugh. There, there, there's so many things to look out in the world and groan about, isn't there? And you don't even need to look out in the world they're grown. You can even look right within the own, our own churches and our own communities. Why? Because everything that is not in 100% obedience to Jesus causes suffering and pain and a whole lot of annoyance. Right? I mean, let's just be honest. When, how, there is enough conflict in the house of God as people are coming out of the world and becoming like Jesus. But it's a process. You don't just surrender to Jesus Christ and suddenly, like, I'm 100% like Jesus. It doesn't happen. What happens is I come to Jesus Christ, surrender all to him, and he says, Woo-wee! You're a mess, buddy. Let me tell you what. I'm going to seal you with the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit is a guarantee, Scripture says. It's a guarantee that I'm going to take you from here and I'm going to conform you into my image. Right? It's guaranteed. The question is about timing. Timing. The more you are conformed into the image of Christ in this life, the more he receives glory, the more he receives honor, the more he receives praise, and more suffering of the world is alleviated. If I can quit criticizing people, which, by the way, the, bio, the devil is called the accuser of the brethren. You know, woman's caught in adultery. <laughs> he writes on the ground. You know, he who's without sin cast the first stone. No stones went flying. Why? Because his passion is while we were yet enemies, he died for us, but he wants to make us loving. Isn't that awesome? And the more we become like him, the more the world experiences the rule and reign of God on earth. That is God's agenda to destroy the mountains of oppression and tyranny and injustice. Jesus has a solution. Repentance and faith toward God. Go and make disciples. And here's where some, well, I'm getting way off. Forgive me. Here is some of the, the passion that has to be in our heart. When we talk about reformation, talk about revival, talk about a great awakening, we're looking at a time in America where the church is declining. And part of the reason is that we need to look into ourselves and figure out where are we missing you, Lord? And one of the primary places we're missing the Lord is we put an overemphasis upon getting saved. What does that even mean, getting saved? Right? I, I mean, I go back, I love studying history. 
the selling of indulgences, Martin Luther, this is an abomination, do, 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 95 Thesis, kaboom, the world blows up. Not literally, but what are they doing? Oh, we need to make, we need to raise money so that we can build a nice Sistine Chapel, and this other guy, oh look, he wants to get this really important um, uh, position in the church, so it's going to cost you this much money to get it, so I authorize you to go sell indulgences, and wow, we're fleecing the people. Sounds like what we just read. Doesn't it? It hasn't changed. Sin is sin. And the true church confronts it boldly, stands against it because the heart is for the people, for liberty and glory, the glory of God, for truth and justice and peace. Right? And that, what they were doing was selling indulgences when the coin and the copper rings are sold from purgatory springs. Oh, look it. <laughs> I don't have to worry about anything. Now I paid my, I, I bought my indulgence. I got my free ticket to heaven. I, I was born again. I was saved. I had my free ticket to heaven. But now I live as I want in this world. Right? Hear what I'm saying? What does it mean to be saved? We need to rethink terminology a little bit. It's all about the kingdom, isn't it, Johnny? It's all about the kingdom, his rule and his reign, and being conformed into his image. The goal isn't to be born again. The goal is to be conformed into his image. The goal is to become like Jesus. The goal is to go and make disciples. And when we miss that truth, we're falling short. And it's only when you can see the whole picture, the big picture, and you can imagine what would this world look like if we actually were like Jesus? What would this world look like if the kings of this earth didn't lord it over one another but lifted and built one another up? And so became servants. This world would be a beautiful place. And when that dream starts to infect us so completely, then we go and we captivate the imagination of a world that is looking for answers, looking for hope. And it is acceptable. One of the things, we often beat people over the head, you're a Christian, you shouldn't do this. You're right, we shouldn't. One of the most powerful, powerful witnesses to the grace of God is, I'm sorry, I was wrong. The world can't handle that. They can't do it. Their identity is too bound up. You hear what I'm saying? We have to hunger and thirst for righteousness. The, you know, the Sermon on the Mount is all about how to access the power of the Holy Spirit to be conformed into the image of Christ. You know, the law at Mount Sinai defined what love is. The law given on the Sermon on the Mount defines the power of God to be conformed and transformed into his image. You can't grow as a Christian if you don't hunger and thirst for righteousness. God feeds the hungry. Hear what I'm saying? Blessed are the poor in spirit. If you are so confident that you are able in your own power, what you do, God says, you don't need me. But that those, which, those who are humble and contrite and tremble at his word, it's like wind will thrust them into their destiny. 
Blessed are the peacemakers. If you don't have any conflict, no, trying to reconcile the world to his law. That is peace. You see where I'm going with this? That we have to redefine Christianity to restore the image of God and man and, and express the law that's written in our hearts. Oh, the clock is not even showing anymore. Okay, I got 10 minutes. All right. There's usually a clock back there, and we'll get you out on time, but it's not there. Power went out. You're mine. No, I'm joking. Sorry. <laughs> the whole question is how can we access the power of God to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ? And Scripture is all about that. It's not some simple one thing. It's a bunch of things all together, the full package. So I just picked a few things out or one thing for time's sake 2 Timothy 3 16 through 17 all scripture is given by the inspiration of God it's literally God breathed and is profitable for doctrine for reproof for correction for instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete thoroughly equipped for every good work this was one of the radical revelations that started to transform Western civilization. They dared to believe that the Bible is God-breathed, and it has a creative power in our life. God spoke, and the world's leapt into being. This, this scripture is so important that we will even risk our necks to get it into the language of the common people. And when they did, the whole world was transformed. I mean, it's really interesting to study, and, you know, scholars and historians, they, they argue about it, and have great resources that are exciting that shows that the destruction of the oppressive religion, simony and despotism was rampant, all began through the scriptures being given to the people, and they started to walk started to walk with Jesus and were empowered to be disciples and his word created in them his character and nature you see we reason why we get together on a Tuesday night and dig into scriptures is because as you see Jesus and I'm not talking just the New Testament all the scripture reveals Jesus his character his nature his heart who who he is and what he is like what is pleasing to God and what is displeasing to God. And as you start to read it and let it start to, to, to live in you and start to become your, your dream, you start to hunger and thirst to be like him, to be merciful and compassionate and gracious, to be thankful as we talked about. You see, you know, the Bible gives you commands. Be thankful in every circumstance. Yes, that's a commandment. Do it. If you don't do it, I'm going to pound you over the head. No. It's, listen, if you're not great, if you don't learn how to be grateful for all the multitudes of blessings, your life is going to be choked out. You see where I'm going with this? Scripture gives us so many ways that you could never exhaust it. You can devote your whole life and study Scripture, but let that Scripture, it's, it's not primarily a book to read and be believed, but it's a book to transform us, to reveal Jesus so that we would become like him, so that we would fall in love with him. Oh God, I just want to know you. Oh God, I just want to know you. 
how do you really know somebody? I can see, you know, when visitors come into the church, I don't know them, right? We have acquaintances. We don't really know them. But when you, and this is why I'm not really good with people's names, because until I've had good conversations with somebody, I don't really know them. But you really want to know somebody out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What is it that is on their heart? The word of God is a conversation with God where he reveals his very heart to us. And as he does so, it transforms our life. Isn't that awesome? Yeah, there's so many things here that I had on my heart, but I'm going to close it in, oh, six minutes. All for another day. God's word will also empower you. See, to, to understand what is at stake, it's a clash between two kingdoms, right? And it's not, it, we don't live in a vacuum like, okay, everybody... Here's Jesus. Now we all be, get to become like him. No, there is a warfare. There's a fight. There's a battle. There's temptation. There's sin, the world, the flesh, the devil. Well, the world, flesh, and devil, if I want to be specific. That are our enemies that are always saying, oh, you want to be like Jesus? Yeah, yeah, let me pressure you. Let me trouble you. Let me get your eyes off of Jesus. Let me make you feel weighed down. Let me rob you of life. Let me tear apart your life so that you will blaspheme God and commit suicide. That's what really Job's wife was saying to him. And everyone who seeks to live in obedience to King Jesus is going to be tested. Fight the fight of faith. Fight the fight of faith. But the moment you so tired, I'm so weary, I can't make it anymore. Lord, if you would just get me out of this situation, Lord, if you would just take care of my child, Lord, if you would just take care of this, I can't stand my boss, I can't stand this, and all of a sudden you start to get weighed down into the mire. But the moment you turn, he is there to lift you back up, to break without hope in the world. So go back to that fig tree. Speak to this mountain. Be cast out and thrown into the sea. And next thing you know, Jesus is walking a hill, carrying, you know, have somebody, Simon has to carry the cross for him because he's so beaten and bruised, he can't even carry it himself. And there he is dying the most shameful death and everything is saying impossible. It is over. Evil has triumphed. But in his death, he brought forth victory. He brought forth salvation. He brought forth the hope for the world. To the, the, Really, the solution for every problem in the world was given through his death and resurrection. And he has an agenda to heal the world. Going back to what Bill was saying, is what I'll close with. 
rivers of living water. We've heard the prophecies. We read it in Revelation. We read in Ezekiel. There is a river that flows from the temple. What is in the... Well, actually, the word in Hebrew for temple and palace is the same thing. Because the temple was the palace of the king, the true king, the palace of God. There is a throne Jesus sits on that throne and wherever he is enthroned and we are in obedience to him and we connect to his power and grace there is a river that flows and wherever that river goes that which is dead shall live and by that river there are trees that bear fruit and the leaves are for the healing of the nations that is the heart of God for all, well, for us today, but for all people of all time everywhere. There, there is healing for the nations. There is healing for your lives. There is healing. There is peace. There is fruit. Wherever those li- rivers of living water flow, but God's heart, we're recreated in the image of God. Render to God the things that are God. He went looking for fruit. He's looking for the fruit of the Holy Spirit from our lives. And God, it says in his word, that out of our innermost being will flow rivers of living water. That is what the world so desperately needs. Rivers of living water flowing from us hope in a world that has lost hope, purpose and significance and identity in a world that is being ravaged by so many competing voices that are tearing it to pieces. Mercy and grace. It's looking. And they're not just, they don't want to just hear what we have to say. They want to see that there's power in the gospel of Jesus Christ the greatest thing we can do for this generation is to hunger and thirst for righteousness, seek Jesus Christ, seek to become like him, and let rivers of living water flow out from us so that these people who are out there saying, is there any salvation? Is there any hope? Is there any purpose? Or is this life worth even taking it from myself because it's so painful I don't even want to live anymore? One of your greatest moral responsibilities, this is awful, is to be full of life, full of joy, righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. And if we are being cut off from that, we're losing our witness. We're losing our witness. So my heart, my passion would be that that, that this word that we hear today, render to God the things that are God. Hopefully, it's, it's... put a hunger and a passion and given some direction how can I be conformed into his image and be part of this solution to a world that so desperately needs Jesus amen let us pray father in heaven I just pray that you would cause us to see Jesus cause us to hear your voice especially as you speak to us in your word And as we hear you speak and as we see your face, let us be conformed into your image. 
Lord, if there are people here that are carrying burdens and weights, Lord, let them be lifted as we turn our hearts unto you and say, Jesus, we surrender all to you again today. Lord, we want you to rule. We want you to reign. We want you to bring transformation to this world through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that these rivers of living water would flow out of each and every one of us here today, that everything that's been stopping up those wells would be removed, that you would capture our hearts again, that you would put this dream of the kingdom into us so deeply that we couldn't help but to speak about it when we go out and when we come home, that we couldn't help but to declare the praises and glories of the one who has called us from darkness into the light and who has given his life for us. Jesus, let us go, empowered by your Holy Spirit to go and make disciples. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. And with that, we dismiss.